Chapter 15 of The Knights of the Square Table. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Virginia Neville. The Knights of the Square Table by Secretary Hawkins. Chapter 15. The Halloween Fire. Perry Stokes brought down to our clubhouse a hatful of long new nails, and he and I took hammers and began to nail down every loose board in the clubhouse floor, and just as I was nailing down the last board, Dick Ferris opened the door. He saw that the old floorboard under which we always kept our dime-a-week dues money in a tin box was nailed tight. Changing the treasury, I said, we have to be more careful with our money, Dick, after this, we will keep it in the drawer of my writing desk. Why, he asked, and then I had to tell him, although I wanted to keep it to myself as long as I could. But I had to tell him that Pooley's gang had discovered the loose floorboard and had loosened two more beside it, and in that way had made for themselves a secret entrance to our clubhouse. And when the other boys came down, Dick asked me to tell them all about it. "'Any new business?' asked our captain, when we had finished talking about Pooley. "'Halloween's coming,' spoke up Bill Darby, "'and us fellas ought to dress up and go around and call on folks like we used to.' "'The vote was taken quickly, and not one voted against it. "'It's just natural for a boy to want to celebrate Halloween. "'And then Dick appointed Shadow Loomis and the skinny guy and me "'to be a committee to go up to the costume shop in Watertown,' and pick out twelve costumes, one for each boy in our club, so that we could dress up on Halloween and celebrate it right. So when the meeting broke up, we went right down to the little landing where our canoes and skiffs were tied, and got in Jerry Moore's long green canoe and paddled up to the new boathouse that was built for Link's big cabin launch. In a few minutes, we were on the big boat, headed for Watertown. The costume shop in Watertown, on a little narrow street, is a queer-looking place. All along the walls are figures and old coats of armor that old-timers used to wear in their battles. And there is row upon row of shelves with masks of grotesque faces, of birds and animals and everything. I led the way into the shop. It was dark and gloomy because it was getting dark and the stingy old shopkeeper had only one lamp lighted in the back of the shop. We could see his old bald head nodding as he talked to a boy who had come to get a Halloween suit, I supposed. Feathers, the old bald-headed man was saying. Feathers, you say? The boy, whose back was turned to us, nodded and said something that we couldn't catch. Oh, said the costume dealer, you mean plumes and he went back to a little shelf and brought forth a beautiful white ostrich plume. Yes, like this? The boy nodded again, and he spoke once more in a very low voice. Fifty, exclaimed the costume man. Oh, my goodness, boy. Fifty? I doubt if I have more than this one. Wait, let me see. He went once more to the rear of the shop and disappeared into a low door. For a few minutes he was gone, and the boy he was waiting on turned around, humming a song. I took one look at him, and then I pulled Link and Shadow back behind a large wax figure wearing a clown suit. For somehow I seemed to recognize that face. 
The shopkeeper returned with something shiny in his hand. It was a metal helmet with two large plumes upon it, a black and a white. The boy he was waiting on started forward. That's fine, he cried in a voice loud enough for us to hear. That's just the thing. The costume man was smiling. I'm glad, he said, because I have plenty of these. I can let you have as many as you need. I'll let you know surely tomorrow morning, sang out the boy. And he turned and started to come out of the store, and I pulled Shadow and Link close to me and let him pass without seeing us. And as he went by, I recognized him. Not by his face, I would have forgotten that, I think, but by his one red eye. That bum eye of him gave him away. It was Sadler, one of Pooley's gang, one of the two I had caught entering our clubhouse through the hole in the floor. He went out without seeing us, and we went up and selected our Halloween costumes. We were not so hard to please. It was only 15 minutes until we had a dozen costumes, clowns and bears and monkeys and cowboys and soldiers, most every different kind you could think of. I had to take a clown suit. None of the others would fit me. I'm getting so darn fat again as the cold weather comes on that I have to wear a suit with plenty of room in it. So I got one of the clowns. You can imagine it for yourself. The costumes were delivered at the clubhouse in the afternoon. Brother Jim, our teacher, led us off from school a half hour earlier, knowing it was Halloween and having been a boy one time himself. So we all gathered pretty early at the clubhouse, anxious to see the suits and try them on. After supper, we all returned to the clubhouse and got ready for our Halloween celebration. Well, every one of us had got into the suit we were to wear and were kidding one another, and oh boy, we had lots of fun, and just as we were enjoying it, bam, there came a loud slam on the door, and in came a dozen Indians. That is, they were dressed like Indians, but under the war paint I recognized the features of the first one. It was Brigan, leader of the Pelham fellows from across the river. Hawkins, he called out, and I stepped forward. For a second he grinned, and I don't blame him, for I wore that clown suit, and I sure looked like a balloon in it. Then his face set again, and he said, The hills are full of Pooley's gang. We only saw two, but we can tell by the way each one came that there's lots more around tonight. All right, I said. What of it? We are going uptown in our Halloween suits. Sure, said Brigan. So are we, but we just thought we'd tell you. You said the hills, I said. That means... It means they are all on our side of the river, broke in Brigan. Us boys haven't any fuss with Pooley's gang. It's you they're after. Why are they on our side? All of them. I made a step forward. Brigan, I said, when Pooley and his gang tackle us, believe me, we are going to be ready to meet them. But tonight, Halloween, you know, we don't want you fellas in our clubhouse, so clear out and let us alone. The other boys dressed as Indians behind Brigan turned and started out the door. But Brigan lingered. Hawkins, he said, I'm asking you, do you want to help us Pelhams? Pooley is going to jump us tonight. No use beating about the bush. Some of my gang gotten bad with hisn. I know what it means when I see them lighting their fires on the hills. They're going to tackle us tonight, not you fellas. I waved my hand. 
Go uptown like we are going to do, I said. Enjoy the Halloween parade, and before it begins to break up, get home as quick as you can. Pooley won't hurt you then. He wanted to say more, but I shoved him gently out and closed the door upon him. We went uptown. Main Street was filled with maskers, all kinds, all sizes, all ages, but mostly kids, of course. For an hour, we surged along with the crowd, and what with the blowing of tin horns, the throwing of confetti, and the glare of red and green lights, it's a wonder we ever could pull ourselves away from it long enough to call on Doc Waters and Judge Granberry in our homes, where we defied anyone to recognize us without pulling up our masks. But after we had made the rounds, we went back again for one last plunge into the masked parade that swept through Main Street. People who were not masked lined each side of the street, watching and laughing while the merrymaking went on. And then suddenly came the beat of a heavy drum and the sound of music, and every eye was turned. Every eye caught the approaching parade that now made its way down Main Street, and even we, sticking together always, separated and ran to the sides of the street to allow this grand parade to pass. It was led by a brass band, boys all of them, four in a row and four rows, sixteen boys who played the music and the drums, and behind them came the grand surprise of the evening. These were boys mounted on ponies, wearing shining silvery suits, and upon their heads bright metal helmets with black and white plumes waving. Ah, in a flash I knew, the Knights of the Square Table, I remembered the boy in the costumer's shop. I'll admit that my jaw dropped when I beheld them riding, the first few rows upon ponies and the last rows upon small horses, not much larger than the ponies. They were four abreast, and I counted nine rows. Good night. Thirty-six knights and a brass band of sixteen, a total of fifty-two. Now I began to realize how great was Pooley's gang. Fifty-two members. Wow! Quickly, my mind went back to the early part of the evening. Brigham's words popped back into my head. Pooley's gang had been scouting around the Pelham Hills. They intended to get Brigham and his Pelham fellows. I knew the reason, perhaps, better than any other boy in my club. What to do? What to do indeed. It was up to us to act now if we ever hoped to. Get to Pelham at once and warn the Pelham fellows to disappear before this Halloween celebration came to an end. Shadow, I whispered. Get word around to all of our boys to hustle back to our clubhouse. And in five minutes we were on our way to the river. Quickly we sped down the narrow path in single file. But as we approached the clubhouse, I saw something that made my heart sick. It was a red glow in the sky. There was fire nearby, and at first I believed it to be our clubhouse. It lent added speed to my fat legs, and I breathed a great sigh when I saw the dark shape of our old shack still standing in the hollow. But across the river, ah, across the river, Pelham's little shack, that they called their headquarters, was burning. We sped down to our landing and scrambled into our canoes and skiffs and started across. 
we found a few rusty cans and buckets and made a line from the river to the shack, a bucket brigade, but I saw right away that the fire was going to win. The shack was doomed. And as I stood there, watching the flames, I heard a voice behind me. Well, I told you so. It was Brigand. Behind him was his gang, dressed in their Indian suits. Now they stood behind me and looked upon the last of their old clubhouse. I shook my head. Dog gone, but it made me feel sad. Even though it was the shack of our rivals, it made me feel blue to see it burn down. Brigand, I said, I feel as sorry as you. Time was when you did us dirty, but we forget all that when we see you in trouble like this. Now you know that good advice I gave you when I told you to keep clear away from Pooley's gang. You fellas should never, but Brigand is wise enough. He nodded his head, but he didn't speak. And then, all of a sudden, we heard the sound of hoofbeats, and I saw something flash. The light from the blazing shack gleamed upon something shiny. And then I made out the figure of a knight upon a pony coming toward the fire at a gallop. He didn't draw up until he was fairly in the firelight, and for a moment I could not recognize the face under the plumed helmet. But the next moment I knew him. It was Pooley. Who did this, he called out in a hard voice, and his face looked angry. I walked up to his pony's head. You should ask, I said. You can answer your own question better than we can. Your smart aleck gang did this, Pooley. Get down off that pony and I'll give you the worst beating you ever had. Oh boy, I was mad. But Herb Acom stepped up in front of me. If anyone's going to fight Pooley, he said, it's me. I got a bone to pick with this fancy gang leader. Don't get excited, broke in Pooley, pointing a gloved hand at Herb. You'll get plenty of chance to fight me, don't worry. I've no time for that on a night like this. I just wanted to be sure that my boys don't get blamed for this fire. And if... You don't think we'd set it on fire ourselves, do you? spoke up Brigan. No, but you do keep oil lamps in it, and accidents do happen. Don't blame this thing on my boys till you are sure about it, see? Now I'm going back, and you fellas better not try to follow me, because I've got an awful big crowd waiting for me, and... He had turned his pony and shot away while he talked. His voice trailed off as he disappeared up the river bank. Gosh, what a fine sight he made in that swell Halloween suit. I knew he was proud of the showing his gang had made, and believe me, if I had been Pooley then, I would have been the proudest boy. But Brigand behind me was crying. For once in my life, I felt heartily sorry for my old enemy. I put my arm upon his shoulder. Forget it, Brigand, I said. They have the victory tonight, but it is an empty one at that. They didn't hurt you fellas, and maybe Pooley didn't know a thing about this fire. Some of the kids in his gang do things he doesn't want them to. You don't have to cry about it. You can build a new shack. But he wouldn't listen to me. He moved over to Ham Gardner, but Ham had tears in his eyes too. No matter who they are, kids like their old hangout places, and it's hard to see them destroyed. We carried water until we put out the glowing fire under the ashes. 
and then we took each Pelham up to his home and saw them safely inside. Well, said Shadow Loomis to me as we paddled back to our shore, I am willing to admit that Pooley has a big gang, but what I can't understand is how they can afford each and every one to own a pony. That must cost a lot of money. I patted Shadow on the back. Don't worry about that, I said. That's one of the first things we will find out, which we did. End of chapter 15